You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is first-time guest, Mr. Simon Popple. Simon is the author of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report, and I caught up with Simon from his offices in the UK this past week. We're going to talk with Simon about different ways to get exposure to investing in gold and why you might want to consider such a thing, and that's in segments two and three today. Let me also take this opportunity to inform you of a terrific enhancement to our resource site. Our resource site, as longtime listeners know, is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can go now to that website. Again, the site is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and you can download the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app. The app can be downloaded to your phone, computer, or both. And with the app, you will get access to the weekly podcast version of this program. You'll also get access to the Portfolio Watch newsletter, which is a weekly economic, financial, and investment market commentary. Uh, That is posted every Monday night at 5 after market close. You'll get access to that with the app. And also, we are now making available what up to this point has been our client-only market, economic, and financial commentary webinar uh, that takes place live every Monday at noon. Uh, You can access the webinar live or you can go to the app and replay it at any time. Also, all the archived versions of the newsletter, the webinars, and the podcasts are there. So just go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, download the app, and for those of you that are subscribers to Portfolio Watch, um, all of our newsletters will be distributed through the app as of October 1. So if you don't yet have the app, you'll need that to get access to all of the resources. The good news is the app is absolutely free. And again, you can get it at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You know, as I'll talk about in the next segment with my guest today, Mr. Simon Popple, the Federal Reserve this past week made quite an announcement. They changed a strategy that they have been using for a very long time. I'll give you just a bit about what happened this past week, and then I'll talk to you about how you may be affected. This is from Fox Business News on Thursday the 27th. The Federal Reserve's Monetary Policy Committee unanimously approved changes to its strategy that account for the likelihood of interest rates remaining unusually low for a long period of time. Well, if you've been a longtime listener to the program, you know that I have long said that the Fed will not raise interest rates simply because they can't. Now it seems that they will not raise interest rates. In fact, Zero Hedge reported that Powell unveiled moments ago, and I'm quoting from the article, the Fed is now operating under an explicit average inflation targeting platform. AIT is the acronym. This average inflation targeting platform has the Fed seeking inflation that averages 2% over time. 
Now, average means that the Fed can overshoot for a while. Now, according to Bank of America's simulations, using this average index, excuse me, average inflation targeting platform, it might mean no rate hikes for up to 42 years. It's not exactly good news if you're 65 years old today and looking to get safe fixed interest yields on an investment. It means that it probably won't happen in your lifetime unless we have a reset. But that's a topic for another segment. Now, the Wall Street Journal wrote about this as well, saying that the Federal Reserve unanimously approved on Thursday a new strategy that will effectively set aside a practice that has followed for more than three decades to preemptively lift interest rates to head off higher inflation. Well, all this means is that in the past, the Fed would raise interest rates before we have an inflation problem. And I have to tell you that when, when to, to really understand how this works, you have to understand the fractional reserve banking system. And up until March of this year, banks were required to maintain a 10% reserve requirement. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, that just means that if you went to put $10,000 into your bank, your bank would have had to reserve $1,000 but could loan out the other 9000 And if interest rates are low enough, it encourages borrowing. And your bank would loan the $9,000 to somebody perhaps who wanted to buy a used car. They would pay for their new used car for $9,000 using the loan proceeds. The car dealer would deposit the $9,000 in her bank. That bank would reserve $900 and loan out the other $8,100. That process would continue from bank to bank. So under the fractional reserve banking system, as long as money is moving, money is being created. So in the past, if the Fed wanted to create money, the Fed would just reduce interest rates. People would borrow. Money would move faster. And as a result, more money was created. Well, if too much money was being created and too much money creation can lead to inflation, then the Fed would preemptively lift interest rates so that inflation didn't get out of control. They are now not going to do that. Now, interestingly, since March 26 of this year, as we have reported, banks are operating with a 0% reserve requirement. So not only did reserve requirements earlier this year drop from 10% to 0%, Now the Fed is saying that they're not going to raise interest rates. And if you believe the Bank of America simulation, it could be four decades before interest rates go back up. Now, if if you look at Fed policy, over time, policy has gotten more extreme. And the results these extreme policies have really seen have diminished. I'll give you an example. The Fed ultimately took interest rates to a high of 2.5% before beginning to reverse course and dropping them to almost zero earlier this year. Now, that 2.5% high in 2018 
is well below the five and a quarter percent high water mark in interest rates that was reached before the financial crisis back in 2007 and well below the peak of 20% that occurred in 1980. So as time has gone by, interest rates haven't gone back to prior levels and cuts have gotten more extreme. In addition to that, since 2007, the Fed has been engaging in quantitative easing, which is just Fed speak for printing money. Now, Fox Business News reports in the article that this new strategy pledges that the Fed will use all its available options to boost the economy. And that probably means more money printing now as a result of this new policy. Now, the question is, why is the Fed changing strategies so quickly? Well, you only change strategies quickly when the current strategy is not working or perhaps making things worse. And as we have warned in the past, money printing means that more money printing will likely follow. The Fed back in January, ironically, warned us against the Fed. This is from a Fed release in January. If a new inflation target is too ambitious and the central bank fails to attain it, the central bank may lose credibility, which may render less effective any other policies it pursues. So in essence, the Fed warned us in January about what the Fed might do, and now they have done it just seven months later. Now, if you haven't already taken time to educate yourself, I can't emphasize enough that you really need to be educated. You really need to understand how money and banking works. And you need to understand what strategies that you might consider for your own individual financial situation. So I would encourage you to download the app at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I would also encourage you to go to revenuesourcingbook.com and get a copy of our free best-selling book, Revenue Sourcing. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Simon Popple. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is first-time guest, Mr. Simon Popple. I'm very excited to have Simon on the program. I have been uh, reading some of his articles for a period of time. Uh, he is the author of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report, you can learn more about his work at brookvillecapital.com. I would encourage you to do that. And Simon, welcome to the program. Great to be on it. So, Simon, let's talk a little bit about your work. Um, explain to the listeners what the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report is and a little bit about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it's a weekly report. Um, and uh, what I'm really doing is, is focusing on the mining stocks. I use a fancy football team, which is quite common here in the UK. Uh, I'm not sure if you have the same in the US, but basically what I'm doing is I'm breaking down the mining sector uh, into you know the best, the best as far as I'm concerned. But I also then break them down by the companies down by size so people know what they're investing in. Um, obviously, some of the companies are several billion dollars in terms of market value. Others are more like, you know, perhaps 100 million. Um, and it's very important that, that people realize that not all gold companies are the same. 
Um, likewise, some are actually producing gold already, in which case you know the gold price is, is very relevant to them today, and others are um, you know simply exploring. And um, so, whilst the gold price is relevant, it's more the exploration results. So, um, I really focus on Canadian and Australian companies, and um, you know help them raise capital, which means I I get a very good kind of daily. Um, uh, intake of, of what's going on and uh, you know obviously that's what I share with uh, with the subscribers well we'll talk more about that uh, as our interview progresses here today but let's talk a little bit about economics um, what's going on from your perspective economically that would make it important for someone to consider getting some exposure to gold and silver well I think there's several things I mean First of all, you know, if you look at um, you know the typical way that people behave when they they move into retirement, they move from uh, higher risk assets, typically equities, into fixed income. But a lot of fixed income assets have actually got either a negative yield or a very low yield, and certainly not a yield that you can live off. And so I think that people are having to look elsewhere. Um, a lot of people have been looking at the equity markets, and I, I wouldn't, you know suggest that they have no equities, but if you look at what's been happening to dividends, there was recently an article in the UK, uh, our FTSE 100 um, has got 49 out of 100 companies either slashing their dividends or stop, stop paying them. So if, if you're someone who's looking for income from fixed income and equities, then um, you know, you, you could be facing some challenges because that income may not be there. Whereas uh, a lot of gold companies are not only maintaining their, their, their dividends, but actually increasing it because the gold price and lower energy prices mean that, um, you know, they're, I'm not sure what the opposite of a perfect storm is, but uh, perhaps perfect paradise or something, but they are, um, you know, they're doing very well at the moment and generating a lot of cash. Well, and I think uh, it was April of this year, uh, Simon, that uh, there were 80-some U.S.-listed stocks that either uh, significantly cut dividends or eliminated dividends. So that's certainly a, a worldwide phenomenon. Um, as we are recording this interview just a few days before it airs, uh, the Federal Reserve is meeting, I guess, virtually, uh, and it seems that they've just come out and decided that, you know, we can allow a little bit more inflation. How do you read what's going on with the Fed presently? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because um, the the Fed has really moved from an inflation target to sort of more of an average inflation target. And given inflation has been running below um, the, the 2% target, now they're talking about an average uh, target. I think it was an average of two percent. So that would imply that they, um, you know, they would be happy with inflation running above two percent. Um, and um, whilst you know, three four percent probably is not a major issue for people. Um, it's I'm not sure the extent to which they can control inflation once it it sort of gets to that level. And um, with someone on a on a fixed income. Um, I would be concerned about inflation sort of eating into savings, you know, especially if, if you're getting a sort of a half percent or negative return on your on your on your capital, and then you've got inflation eating into it. Um, you know, you, you should really have something in your portfolio that will help you with your 
your purchasing power. And, you know, I think a lot of people on a fixed income, uh, Simon, are looking at just the price of groceries. I mean, when you look at uh, food price inflation presently, at least here in the U.S., um, it's hard to believe that the official inflation rate is accurate. In fact, the Chapwood Index, I've had John Williams from Shadow Stats here on the program. You know, a lot of the alternate measures that uh, arguably are more accurate have inflation at 9 or 10%. Uh, what would your perspective be on that? Um, I, I would probably agree with that, to be honest, because, um, you know, just looking at food, um, at, at the end of the day, you know, you, the whole idea is you maintain your purchasing power uh, at the very minimum. I mean, you know, if you can buy some milk for a dollar today, then um, with, with, with your, your, your income perhaps uh, increasing through an annuity or whatever it is, that means you've got, let's say, dollar and two cents. You want, you want to be able to buy that milk in a year's time at a dollar and two cents. Um, if that milk's going to cost you a dollar and eight cents or a dollar and ten cents, um, and your income has only grown to a dollar and two cents, you know, you're, it's starting to hurt you. And um, I think that this is something that people have probably, I don't know, perhaps thought about but done nothing about for a long time. Um, interestingly, I'm not sure if you saw this week, but Warren Buffett, um, who's always been uh, rather disparaging about about gold um in in their latest um report uh it showed that uh, Berkshire Hathaway are actually um exiting airlines and uh, selling down from their bank positions and they've actually bought into Barrett Gold which is you know very unusual for uh, for someone like him um and, and just to add to that in fact if you look at the performance of the gold price versus versus Berkshire Hathaway share price over the last 20 years, you'll see that gold's actually outperformed Berkshire Hathaway, uh, which you know I was, I was stunned about, to be honest. I didn't believe it, and uh, I, uh, I had to Google it to, to prove it to myself as much as anything. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, I, I, I think gold is, um, it, it's, it's certainly something that people should, you know, should consider. So when when you look, Simon, at at, at global debt, um, and then I, the, the, in response to COVID, uh, there, there's there's more government stimulus spending. Obviously, there's no money in the proverbial checkbook to pay for that spending. So essentially, we're you know we're seeing printing and spending take place. Um, to what extent do you think Mr. Buffett looked at what's going on globally and the money printing? And to what extent do you think that that played into his decision to invest in gold? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very difficult to kind of get inside people's heads. But I mean, I, I think that um, it's certainly a consideration. Uh, if, if money has been printed, I mean, global debt is, is, is going through the roof. And um, you know, I think there's always been a belief that you could perhaps inflate it away. And if you inflate it, then, um, uh, you know, you, you, can, you, can bring, you can bring the, the debt pile down, uh, which, which is true. But th th then I think, the other thing you need to think about is that if you do that, then it's very difficult to issue new debt at anything like the same rates as a previous debt because no one really wants to buy it. Because you know, if if you lent a dollar that could buy a pint of milk, and um, uh, five years later your your money is paid back, and you can't even buy a, a you know a quarter of a, a quarter of a, a pint or a liter of milk. Um, 
then you know you want you want a greater return the next time you lend it to make sure that you've at least maintained your purchasing power. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, you know gold is getting a lot more interest from people because they're um, you know they are concerned about um, you know their purchasing power moving forward. So Simon, let's just say that someone's listening to this. They're they're retired. They're on a a, a fixed income. They have uh, maybe some money in a retirement account. Um, why does gold serve as an inflation hedge? That's a question we get here on the program a lot. So if someone's sitting there going, okay, I, I get inflation. I get that money creation um, has the potential to create big inflation. Why is gold the best place to be as far as an inflation hedge? Well, I mean, I, I think you, you need to look at gold very carefully. I mean, because uh, there are periods where it's been a fantastic inflation hedge and that there are periods where it hasn't. Um, but you know, I think the important thing is to have at least some in your portfolio because um, you know, there's a lot of things that people have in their portfolios at the moment that are certainly not inflation hedges. And, and therefore, um, you know, it makes sense for people to, to think about having at least some gold in their portfolio. And um, I mean, I, I've got some in my SIP, which is basically my private pension. And um, I've managed to treble the value of that using uh, sort of mining stocks. And obviously, I, you know, I deal with this market on, on, on a sort of daily, well, hourly basis. So um, I know a lot about it. But um, even some of my subscribers have done very, very well. Um, but um, you know, I think the important thing is is, is to have some exposure. I mean, I, I don't think you want to jump in with with, with, with two feet. Um, but most people have absolutely no exposure whatsoever to gold, and um, I think that's a mistake. Well, we are chatting today with Mr. Simon Popple. Simon is the author of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report. The website, if you'd like to learn more about his work, is brookvillecapital.com. And uh, Simon, we've got about uh, a minute and a half left in this segment. So let's just briefly, then we'll we'll pick up on this in the next segment. Let's talk about the different ways someone can get exposure to gold in their portfolio, and maybe just a brief recommendation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's three ways that people should look at. The first one is um, to buy physical gold, and if you're going to do that, I'd suggest you buy it through a reputable dealer because um, uh, at some point you're going to have to uh, sell it or you'll probably sell it or someone in your family will sell it. And if it's been bought through a reputable dealer, then it'd be much easier to sell. Uh, another route is the ETF market. Um, and uh, you know, that, that can be a cost-effective way of holding gold. Personally, I'm slightly concerned about it because of all the, um, uh, the counterparty risks. There's quite a few links in the chain and everyone has to do their job for... Uh, for the ETF to uh, to hold true, and um, so I'm I'm slightly wary of that, but they can be a very cost-effective way of, um, of of having exposure to gold. And the third area, which is where I really focus on, is the mining stocks. Um, and uh, you know, people need to to look at that. It, it's the most volatile market, but um, uh, with a bit of help and having a diversified approach. Uh, you can get some some good exposure to to companies that are actually, uh, you know, producing gold you know, out of the ground. Well, we'll pick it up in the next segment with Mr. Simon Popple uh, when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host Dennis Tubergen. 
Joining me on today's program is Mr. Simon Popple. Uh, Simon is the author of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report. You can learn more about his work at brookvillecapital.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-V-I-L-L-E capital.com. I would encourage you to check it out. And uh, Simon, let's just jump in. Uh, you know, we talked about three ways, or you mentioned three ways to get exposure to gold in one's portfolio. One is to buy physical gold. Two is to buy an exchange-traded fund. Um, I would share your concerns about certainly some ETFs with that counterparty risk. And then the third way is mining stocks. So let's just for this part of this segment, talk about the price relationship or the price movement relationship between physical gold and mining stocks in a, in a typical environment, if that's a fair question. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, what I like about the mining stocks is, and we're talking about the producers here, not the explorers, um, because the explorers, um, you know, are a very different game and you need to understand what you're doing. Um, you know, I do cover it as well, but let, let's just focus on, on producers for now. Um, what, uh, what you basically have is the, the revenue line, which is very much down to what they produce and the gold price. And so the higher the gold price, um, the more that they obviously sell their, their gold for. Now, I think the, the important thing for for listeners is you know you can't print gold. You know, gold, funnily enough, arrived from outer space um, thousands, if not millions, of years ago, and um, you know it, it, it's a precious metal, and I think it's one of the few tangible assets that, that's uh, recognised as being valuable sort of anywhere in the world. But just looking at the simple economics. Um, it's obviously expensive not only to find gold, but also to extract it. Now, finding it is more to do with, with perhaps technology, but extracting it is very much down to, to energy costs. And if you can imagine, um, it, it is not cheap to, to build a mine, build a processing plant. So energy costs are very, very relevant. So well, I think what is particularly attractive about the mining sector at the moment is not only do you have um, you know, a high gold price, and you know, silver has been, been improving as well, but um, given the reduction in, in, in oil prices, you know, the energy costs have gone down as well. So that is why you know, you've got some companies producing some very good results. And uh, you know, I think probably one reason why you know, the sector's caught the eye of um, Berkshire Hathaway and, and Warren Buffett, and you know, people are investing in the sector who perhaps previously haven't looked at it. So there, I, re, I read varying reports, and I'm asking this question, I guess, as much out of personal curiosity as for, as for any other reason. Uh, what, if this is fair, is an average cost to produce an ounce of gold? Is that is that a fair number to ask about? Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean if you look at the World Gold Council, which is the sort of, I don't know, um, a, a recognized expert body on the gold sector, um, they've got... Um, the, what they call the all-in sustainable cost, which is sort of capturing all the costs, uh, including some exploration costs um, of, of producing the gold. And, and they've got that sort of between um, uh, sort of $1,000 an ounce and probably $1,100 an ounce. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it, it's somewhere in that range, but um, that's, in, uh, given the gold price at the moment is sort of 1950, you know you've got quite a nice buffer there um, between 
uh, your your costs and your revenue. Now, obviously, that's an average. So some companies will be lower, some companies will be higher. But um, I think if, if you're looking for a generalization, then something of the order of sort of uh, $1,000 an ounce to $1,100 an ounce is not a bad uh, yardstick to use. So it just strikes me, Simon, that if uh, you see gold prices go up $100 an ounce, um, the profit percentage or, 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 or profit numbers of a particular producing mining company go up exponentially to the price of gold on a, on a percentage basis. So um, is that a fair assessment? And, and is there a general rule of thumb as to the relationship? Yeah, I, I mean, it's very um, it's very difficult to sort of um, give give rules between, you know, if, if the gold price goes up, um, your costs are likely to go up as well, but probably not by as much. And, um, you know, I'll give you an example that, you know, if, if the gold price goes up and someone who's a geologist um, who's working for a company or a miner that's working for a company uh, sees that the company is, is making a, a, you know, an awful lot of money um, and there's other mining companies in the region, um, they, you know, they're not stupid. They'll, they'll know that, that uh, these companies can afford to pay them more. And so they may increase their wages uh, or, or wage demands slightly. But I think if we get a gold price that really is taking off, then I think it's unlikely that um, the costs will go up as much as the uh, as the gold price, and therefore you get this expanding margin, which is you know what is exciting people about the sector. So when you look at producing mining companies and you make recommendations in your newsletter, what are a few of the things you look at? What are the selection criteria that you consider? Well, I, I, I use what's known as what I call the bridge system, which stands, it's an acronym for balance sheet, resources, infrastructure, diversification, grade, and exploration potential. Um, now, the balance sheet, you kind of you, you want to be careful about companies with huge amounts of debt. Um, now, typically, producers with large amounts of debt were absolutely fine, um, but because of uh, COVID-19, there have been mines that have been shut down. And uh, if these are a flagship mine and you've got a large debt repayment and you can't, um, you know, you've only got one mine. Um, then you know you do need to be careful. So I think that you know people they, they need to look at where the mines are, how much debt is in the company, um, and you know perhaps how long the, the the mine life is, because that gives you an idea as to you know how long the cash flow is, is likely to to go for. Um, and then obviously you know it's nice if you've got a company which has got a, a, a lot of resources. Um, these fall into various categories that I that I discuss in the newsletter. But you, you, you want a, a company that's got um, a lot of reserves because reserves are the highest category. You've got probable and proven reserves, and you know you want as many of those as you can because that gives you confidence that um, you know there, there's uh, gold that can be mined in the future. Um, also, it's nice to have a, a good uh, a good amount of resources. But um, that, that's where some of the other aspects come in. But uh, you know, you want the resources to be economic, um, and so ideally, you want an infrastructure around economic deposits. So 
uh, you know, I'm talking about power, water, roads. So if you do start mining, then uh, there is an available infrastructure for you to use. You don't have to build it yourself. Um, diversification really is more to, well, it's on two levels. On the one hand, I like to, to have projects where there are several different assets within a company. So if one asset um, doesn't work out or there's problems, then you, you know, you've got other sources of, of, of value in the company. Uh, but also, you know, diversification, I think it's important across metals. So perhaps have some gold, silver and some um, uh, other precious metals. And I think you know, diversification in terms of geography as well. You know, you don't want all your, your assets in one country. It's good to have assets across, you know, several countries. Um, and then exploration potential really, you know, that, that that's uh, very much about having the potential to get more resources and people like a bit of hope value with a stock. That's more to do with explorers, but um, uh, you know, some producers have got great exploration potential as well. So um, you know, they're, they're using some of their cash to, uh, to explore that in the hope of, of finding um, you know, some large deposits. And you know, grade again is important, but you, you need to be very careful with grade because um, you need to, to look into um, how easy it is to extract the ore uh, and just having a high grade. Um, normally it points to um, you know, a nice deposit, but um, you do need to make sure that um, it, it is going to be feasible to, to extract it commercially, uh, economically, and um, you know, enable the, the mining company to, to make money. So let's talk briefly, Simon, about um, the explorer companies versus the producers. Um, what type of investors should, in general, think about investing in explorers? It seems to me that that would be a bit more speculative. Uh, what's your take? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, explorers are a lot more speculative, and um, I think that um, you do need to be very careful if you're if you're looking at that market because um, it's. There's also a, a sort of a time uh, angle to explorers because they, um, you know, they can explore for years and years. And what tends to happen is an explorer, because they're exploring, not producing, they're not generating cash. So if they are exploring and not finding gold, then providing they're, they're, they're looking in a prolific area, um, what they'll do is they'll then raise more cash by issuing more shares, which is diluting existing shareholders. And um, uh, you know, generally, that's okay to happen a few times if they don't find much. But if you can imagine that uh, you know, the, these exploration programs generally aren't cheap, and so if you've got an explorer that keeps raising more and more equity and is not finding, uh, you know, what they're looking for, then you know that can be um, tough on, on tough on the shareholders. Um, but, but if they do find what they're looking for, you know, the shares, um, they can go up, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 50, you know, even 100 times. So um, it really is very speculative. So uh, uh, if people are looking at that market, um, I would only recommend having a very, very small you know, percentage of your portfolio in explorers. And I think that's more, more a case of, you know, probably having a bit of fun than... Uh, uh, you know, sort of using it as a as a, a sensible investment strategy. 
Yeah, we're chatting today with Mr. Simon Popple. He is the author of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report. You can get more information about his work at brookvillecapital.com. Time for one quick question, uh, Simon. In in this environment with gold prices, you know, reaching new highs, is the universe of mining companies expanding, or are we not seeing much change? Well, it's interesting because in in the last, uh, let's say, bull market, a lot of mining companies um, burnt through a lot of their cash on exploration, and um, they, you know, this didn't go down very well with shareholders. So, um, you know, given that gold comes from uh, outer space and um, you know you can't print it, I think what what we're going to have this time round is um, a lot more M and A where they they buy some junior companies that have already got a good resource with the potential for a lot more. And so, you know, what they'll, what they'll be looking to do is to use their their shares and, and the cash they're generating to essentially monetize some of these junior companies and, um, you know, bring them into production sort of uh, earlier than they otherwise would. And um, I think that could be attractive for some some of the juniors as well, because if you're if you're the manager of a, a junior mining company, you can't really sell your shares because if you do, um, you know, the market's going to get pretty upset and uh, you'll probably find that your share price tanks if, if the CEO is found selling his shares. But if, um, if, the CEO, if, if a company gets taken over by one of the majors or an intermediate, and um, you know, rather than having you know, 20% of the shares, you've probably got 2% of the shares in the enlarged, it's much easier for you to, um, to trip your shares onto the market and, and to realize some value from them. Um, so I think that could be very attractive to uh, to some you know mining executives from the juniors. Well, the clock says uh, that we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Simon Popple. He is the author of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report. You can learn more about his work at brookvillecapital.com. Simon, been a pleasure chatting with you today. Love to have you back down the road. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. We will return after these words. Welcome back to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, if you weren't listening to the first segment of today's program, let me remind you that you can go online and visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and download the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app. The app allows you to get access to the podcast of this program as well as the weekly up-to-this-point client-only webinars that tell you what's going on in the economy, the markets, uh, from our perspective, as well as the weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter. So again, the website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Also, making available this week a copy of the Revenue Sourcing book. It was a number one bestseller a few months ago uh, in four categories with Amazon, Uh, You can go to revenuesourcingbook.com to get your complimentary copy. In this segment, I want to give you just a bit from that revenue sourcing book where we talk about how currency has changed. And as much as currency has changed in the past, I expect we're going to see even more dramatic changes moving ahead. See, after World War II, as the revenue sourcing book documents, As part of the Bretton Woods Agreement, the U.S. dollar was made the reserve currency of the world. 
Now, the dollar at the time was the most desirable currency in the world because it could be exchanged for gold at any time at a rate of $35 an ounce. So because of this convertibility to gold, all countries around the world were very comfortable using the U.S. dollar, and all international trade, or I should say nearly all international trade, took place in U.S. dollars. Now, that system of the dollar being backed by gold began to unravel in the 1960s with massive U.S. government spending. Medicare, Medicaid, the war on poverty, the Vietnam War, huge drain on the U.S. budget. These programs were extremely expensive, and the politicians had three choices to to fund the budget deficit. They could raise taxes, they could cut spending or print currency, and predictably, the politicians then did what the politicians are doing now. They decided to turn on the money-printing machine. Well, it didn't take long for foreign investors and banks to get nervous, and they decided that they'd rather have the gold than they would the dollars. So they started to exchange their dollars for gold. And because these foreign demands to exchange U.S. dollars for gold got so great, President Richard Nixon at the time had no choice but to close the gold window. In fact, in 1971, he went on television and said he had to temporarily suspend the redemptions of U.S. dollars for gold. You can see a transcript of his speech in the Revenue Sourcing Book, available at revenuesourcingbook.com. But in his speech, he blamed this action on the international currency speculators. Well, Mr. Nixon, in that speech, followed every rule of politics. Rule number one, never blame yourself. Number two, seem sincere about a solution, even when it's blatantly obvious you're not sincere. And number three, tell people what they want to hear. During that speech, Mr. Nixon said that the dollar will buy just as much tomorrow as it does today. That's a whopper so big that even Pinocchio would have blushed. The 1971 facts are this. The average sale price of a home in the United States in 1971 was $24,000. The price of gold was $35 an ounce. That means it took 685 ounces of gold to buy the average new home. Today, gold is about $2,000 an ounce. The average new home costs about $320,000, which means if you have 685 ounces of gold today, you can buy nearly four houses. 685 ounces of gold bought one average home in 1971. Today, it buys almost four. Is that because an ounce of gold is inherently more valuable today than it was in 1971? Obviously not. It just means the dollar buys that much less. That's why it's important for you to have a copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book. The Revenue Sourcing Book talks to you about using the two-bucket approach to manage your investments. You want to make sure to manage against a stock market crash and a deflationary outcome but also protect yourself from an inflationary outcome. The book outlines a strategy that you can consider. I would strongly encourage you to get a copy of the book if you've not yet done it. Again, revenuesourcingbook.com is the website. Also, 
if you're just tuning in at the end of the program here, we do have a new Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app. All you need to do to get a copy of the app is visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and download the app. Uh, Using that app, you'll get a copy of our weekly newsletter as well as access to the podcast and the weekly client-only investment update webinars. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you'll tune in again next week. Have a terrific week.